And good morning once again. Can I have you turn me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9? We got into this a little bit last time we met, but I want to read the entire passage that we're going to look at this morning. So let's pick it up in Matthew 9 verse 18. It says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, for she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, He said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, as we have mentioned many times in our study of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, who was a Jew, wrote his gospel primarily to the Jewish people to present Jesus to them as their long-awaited Messiah and King. Now, to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel, Well, he's got to show that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's coming. And so Matthew quotes 16 different messianic prophecies. And every time Jesus does something that fulfills one of them, he writes these words. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying. And then he goes on. This proved that Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies, which the Old Testament prophets spoke about the coming Messiah, thus authenticating Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. You see, one of the, the, the main thing that God told the Jewish people to look for that would identify the true Messiah, remember now, they were all, always dealing with false messiahs before and even after Jesus' coming. So God says, look, you're going to know the Messiah that I'm sending you, the true Messiah, uh, in part because he is going to have the miraculous abilities to work miracles, to heal the sick, to heal those who are crippled, and even raise the dead. This is going to be the sign of the true Messiah. This is what the Old Testament prophets foretold about. We read in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, 
The Messiah, when he came, would cause the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the blind to see, etc. And so, Matthew was quoting these prophecies because he knows his Jewish audience will never receive a man who doesn't fulfill those Old Testament prophecies as Messiah. So, let me just recap where we are in our study of Matthew's Gospel. So far, we were introduced to the person of the king in in chapters 1 through 4. Next, to the principles of the king, which is the section from chapters 5 through 7, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And then we moved into chapters 8 and 9, which we're going to finish today, where Matthew shows us the power of the king, the person of the king, the principles of the king, and the power of the king. And here's the idea. If Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah, the king of Israel, well, he has to have power to reign. He might have the pedigree. He might have, you know, the lineage, but he needs to have the power. And so Matthew wants to show us that Jesus does, in fact, have power to rule. And he does this by recording ten miracles in these two chapters, which demonstrated Jesus' power and authority over disease, demons, nature, and over death itself. Let's recap quickly. Chapter 8 opened up. We saw Jesus heal a leper. He then healed a paralyzed slave boy. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law who had a severe fever. Then we read in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And so again, pointing back to the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah, Here's another place where Jesus fulfilled that, Matthew is saying, which proves he's Messiah. After that, they crossed the Sea of Galilee to get to the other side, because they were up in the area of the Galilee. They wanted to minister on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, you remember how that vicious storm arose. Uh, So vicious that that these seasoned fishermen uh, thought that they were goners. uh, But Jesus, of course, you remember, calmed the storm with just a word. And they marveled that even... Nature obeyed his commands. When they got to the other side, uh, they came across two guys who were living in the tombs outside the city of Gadara. In fact, they were made to live among the tombs by the people of Gadara because these two guys were so demon-possessed, they were just so ferocious and all that uh, that nobody could deal with them. And so they were forced to live out there inside the tombs. So Jesus cast the demons out of these two men, many demons, in fact, so many they were called legion. Uh, in, in the Roman uh, terms, uh, Roman army, a legion was 6,000 men. So when we talk at 6,000 demons, we don't know. But there's a lot of them in these two guys. And so Jesus he, uh, cast the demons out and sent these two men back to their towns to, to uh, witness to their families about what the Lord had done for them. And then, you remember, he uh, healed a man and forgave his sins, a guy who was... Uh, who was paralyzed and tormented by some severe physical infirmity. And thankfully, he had, a, he had a, four good friends, right? And they, wanted, they believed Jesus could heal their friend if they could just bring him to Jesus. The guy was paralyzed, of course, so they took his whole bed. And don't think of a four-post deal. It was more like a stretcher, okay? And they came to the house where Jesus was teaching, but there were so many people that were packed inside and even around the house, uh, they couldn't get close to Jesus. So what they did was they carried their friend up the outer steps. All the houses in Israel had steps that led from the outside up to the roof, which was a patio area. 
So they brought their friend up to the roof area. They began to dismantle the tiles. They actually opened the roof up and lowered the guy down on some ropes on his bed right there where Jesus was teaching. And Jesus, of course, forgave his sins and then healed his, uh, his disease. And, of course, that created quite a stir among the Pharisees who were there. Who does this guy think he is, that he thinks he has the power to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Well, hello, this is what he was trying to get across, that he was no mere prophet. He was God incarnate. Of course, the Pharisees just were too, uh, too proud to, to recognize that. And then after he called Matthew to become one of his disciples, as we read this morning, he healed a wo- woman who, as the Bible says, had, had an issue of blood for 12 years. Actually, she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and we talked about that last time we uh, met. And so I'm not going to get into it this morning at all. But from there, after he healed this woman of this, of this flow of blood, he then, and, and the man is not named in Matthew's gospel, but the other gospels tell us his name was Jairus, whose daughter Jesus then raised from the dead. From there he restored the sight of two blind men and cast the demon out of a mute man, restoring his ability to speak. Chapter 9 climaxes then with verses 35 and 6. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among them. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And that's a very important thing to understand. Jesus didn't just work miracles and heal people to authenticate his ministry as Messiah. Yes, that was primary. But what was also very important was that he wanted to show God's love and compassion for people who were hurting. Does God care about what you're going through? Does God care about the pain in your life? You better believe he does. Yeah, but who am I? I'm nobody. That's the whole point. Jesus hung out with the the lowest of society. God loves all of us. From the loftiest uh, king to the lowest servant, he loves all of us and wants to work in all of our lives. And so he is the friend of sinners, all sinners. But I want you to see that Jesus' ministry was all about restoring to people what Satan had stolen from them. I mean, if there's anything that we can learn from this, these two chapters, uh, apart from Jesus authenticating his ministry as Messiah, is that God wants to restore to us all that Satan has taken from us. And I'm thinking primarily, first and foremost, of our relationship with God. Satan stole that from us in the garden. But Jesus wants to restore that relationship. You know, the question that many people grapple with A question that causes many to resist the God of the Bible or to reject him altogether is, why did God create evil? Now, you'll hear this from unbelievers often. You know, you Christians say that the God of the Bible is a a good and loving God who created all things. Well, evil is a thing. So why did God create evil if he's so good and so loving? Well, folks, the answer to that is that God didn't create evil. And by the way, evil is not a thing. It's a lack of a thing. Like rust to metal or rot to a tree, evil is a corruption of what God has made, what God called good. You remember how that in Genesis chapter 1 is God is creating on each of the six days of creation. After he creates something, he says, it says that God saw that it was what? Good. 
Every day that God created, it ends with, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And then after the six days of creation, God kind of steps back, you might say, and looks at all He has done and declares, it was all good, Genesis 1.31. So God only created what is good. God doesn't create evil. So what happened? Well, we read in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis how that God put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, a good place. And gave them only one prohibition. You shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of that tree, dying you will surely die. Well, Satan takes the form of a serpent. He tempts Eve, makes her think God is withholding from her something that's good. She looks at the fruit, looks good, looks like any other fruit in the garden. Good to eat, smells good, looks right, you know. So she takes a bite, gives to Adam, and he did eat, and they fell. When I say they fell, what that means is they fell from perfection. They fell from fellowship with God. And now sin entered into the human race. And what Adam and Eve did not realize at that moment, I'm convinced, was this. That at that moment, because God gave to Adam now. God gave to Adam the responsibility to... to you know, he was the federal head of the human race. And so when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, when Adam disobeyed God Almighty and obeyed the devil... He turned the world over to the devil. The devil became the world's new owner and man's new master. And that's why the devil is called in Scripture the God of this world. He's in control of this world. Not ultimately. God's ultimately in control of everything. But Satan usurped the right to reign on this earth from Adam. And now Satan has become the world's new owner and man's new master. And at that point, Satan working, listen... Through man's sinful fallen nature began to corrupt the good creation that God had made. The Bible says that through sin came disease, physical handicaps, injustice, evil, and then death. And because of this, one of the descriptions of Jesus' earthly ministry was that he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, Acts 10.38. That was Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. That he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. The idea behind the word oppress in the Greek is to torment, afflict, to cause to suffer. All the torment, all the affliction, all the suffering in this world is not God's fault. It's a result of what the devil has done through our own rebellion. You know, people look at this world and go, wow... They look at a world full of injustice and evil and kids being born with disease and deformities and, and people starving and so on. And they look at this world and go, you know, you Christians talk about God being a good and loving God. Look at this mess. I mean, if he's so good and so loving, why did he make this mess of a world for us to live in? The answer to that is he didn't make that mess. We brought that mess upon ourselves. God made a good world and put man in a good place. And man exercised his free will. That's the key. Why does God let Satan continue? I don't get it, people say. Why does God let Satan continue? Because of free will. God didn't want robots. He wanted people who would love Him and obey Him freely of their own free will. Free will, though, is meaningless if there's not a choice, right? And therefore, God allows the devil to continue because the devil provides this world with a choice. We can choose to obey the Lord God and do it His way and be blessed, or we can rebel and do what the devil wants us to do and do it His way and bring upon ourselves, our lives and our world, all kinds of horrible consequences. Some people say, well, yeah, I don't believe in God or the devil. I'm an atheist, okay? That doesn't mean anything. Jesus said, if you're not a former, you're what? 
You don't have to be a Satan worshiper to follow the devil. If you're not for Jesus, you are being manipulated and led and taken advantage of by the devil. You don't even realize it. But this world is not the world God originally created for us to live in. This is a world that has come about through our own rebellion. We thought we knew better than God what was best for our lives. Back in the garden, you say, well, why am I being blamed for Adam's sin? Because we still think we know what's best for our lives more than God. And every day people prove it by doing their own thing. And so when I say that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the devil robbing people through sin. We're not innocent victims, folks. Okay? The devil's ripping us off. That's, that's for sure. But we allow it. We allow it when we rebel against God and don't do what the, what the Lord wants us to do. The Satan is robbing people through our own sin of the good that God has done in their lives or wants to do in their lives. And so when we talk about the good of Jesus' earthly ministry, it was all about restoring to people what Satan had stolen from them. There's even a, a wonderful verse in the Old Testament that kind of deals with this. Joel chapter 2, verse 25, where God said to Israel, I will restore to you all the years the locusts have eaten. Remember that? The locusts. The locusts were brought upon Israel by God as a judgment for their rebellion. And God is saying to them, look, if you will repent of your rebellion, if you will get your lives right with me, if you will turn from your sin and start obeying me once again, I will remove the locusts. In fact, I won't just remove the judgment, I will bring the blessings again. And God is all about doing that. He wants to restore. He wants to bless. But He can't do it in the face of rebellion and sin. And so, you know, we go our own way. We, let, we, we obey the devil. And God says, okay, well, I'll let you follow the devil for a while. See what kind of a master he is to follow. See, see, see how he treats you. Of course, the devil is all about, you know, beating us up and killing us. And we get sick and tired of this, our sin beating us up. Oftentimes, it brings us to a place of repentance. And God says, if you'll return to me now, I will restore to you the blessings that sin robbed you of, the devil. And so on. Now Jesus went about doing this good. And healing those who were oppressed by the devil. He did so by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And along with that healing the sick. As we just said. And we read about this in verse 35 of Matthew 9. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages. Teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every, uh, excuse, every sickness. And every disease among the people. I want you to understand something. In the coming kingdom age, God is going to eradicate from the earth all things like blindness, paralysis, all sickness and handicaps. There's no longer going to be any who are mute or deaf or crippled or blind. In fact, He's going to restore the earth. Excuse me. He's going to restore the earth to the paradise it was before sin entered into it and corrupted God's good creation. Paul the Apostle talks about this in Romans chapter 8, and I'm thinking primarily around verse 21, where Paul tells us that when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they didn't just fall in their nature. In other words, you know, it, wasn't, it didn't just affect them. Their sin didn't just corrupt man's nature. It corrupted God's whole creation. And Paul speaks of the creation as if he's, he's personifying it. 
and, and acting like it's alive, like it's a person. And he says, look, the whole creation since the fall has been travailing and laboring under the weight of sin and corruption, waiting for the day that Jesus returns when he is going to restore it to the place it was before the fall, before sin entered into it. A place when God first created it and looked at it and said, it's all good. It's all good. The prophet Isaiah foretold of this coming restoration of the creation in chapters 11 and and then chapter 35. Let me just read you portions from each quickly. First of all, Isaiah 11. Speaking of the day when Jesus returns as Messiah and establishes His kingdom. In that day the wolf and lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat and the calf and the yearling will be saved with the lion and a little child will lead them all. Can you imagine that? A little child walking with a big 700-pound lion Got the thing by the mane, leading it around like a puppy. Okay, He said, the cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And Isaiah is prophesying of this day when Messiah returns and how he's going to restore the earth, right? In fact, before the fall, there was no carnivorous animals. Every animal was an herbivore. They just, they ate fruit, they ate, you know, hay. And, and, and Isaiah is saying someday when Messiah comes, he is, there's going to be no more carnivorous animals ripping each other apart. In fact, there's going to be no vicious animals at all in the kingdom. A little child will put its hand in the in the cobra's den and not be harmed. Will lead a lion by the mane and not be harmed. A whole different world order, okay? In fact, he goes on to say in Isaiah 35 that God's going to make the whole earth like the Garden of Eden. Even the wilderness and the desert will be glad in those days. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind, unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will be, uh, become a pool, and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. And the idea is when Messiah comes, there can be no more uninhabitable places on the earth. You're not going to have the harsh climate changes. No more deserts. They're going to be tropical. All right? I would imagine even uh, at the North Pole and South Pole, God's going to work it out where there's going to be uh, vegetation up there and you're going to, people are going to be able to live up there. People are going to be able to live throughout the entire world without uh, having to worry about the harsh climates. In fact, that's going to be the time when God is going to restore all things that He had made to the time before the fall. See, Jesus' ministry was actually a precursor, was a preview of the coming kingdom age when he wouldn't just heal a few here or there like he did during his earthly ministry, but listen, he would restore to the entire human race what Satan had robbed us of. He would give us back the health, the joy, the peace, and the love he desired for all mankind to have for each other. So Jesus' earthly ministry, listen, was actually an invitation through miraculous illustration of the healing and restoration that would characterize the entire world when Jesus returned and established His glorious kingdom on the earth. And what a kingdom that will be. 
If you're tired of living in a world full of injustice and evil and senseless killings where kids can't even play outside in Chicago without being cut down by some, some stray bullet from a gangbanger, if you're tired of watching the news and seeing the senseless violence and the rapes and the murders and so on, and you long for a day when God is going to make this world completely different, then Jesus is inviting you to become a member of the kingdom. You say, well, I don't understand why God has let it go on this long. If he wants to fix this world, why doesn't he do it? The answer to that is simply this. God is showing us that, you know what, if you think you know better than me what's best for your life, well then if you don't want me to reign over your life, you want to be your own God, you want to be your own master, then here's the result. See how it is when man governs. Are you tired of corruption in politics? You're tired of, of people who get into power making promises and then become as corrupted as everybody else? You know, this world is just, again, a product of man's rebellion. And God wants us to see, take a good hard look at what it's like for us to govern ourselves in the hopes that we would become sick and tired of us governing our own life. That's where it starts. Because, you know, I made a mess out of my life before I gave it to Christ. And I know some of you did too. And God wants us to receive Jesus personally to reign in our hearts and over our lives. And all those who bow the knee to Jesus now, when he comes back someday, they will be gathered to be... a part of his kingdom on the earth and that's what Jesus ministry in essence was all about inviting people by him preaching the gospel of the kingdom God is inviting everyone to come doesn't matter you know what you've done in life how good you've been or how bad you've been only God's grace through faith can get you into heaven and so he's inviting people to come but here's the thing people won't come unless the gospel is preached to them. And the gospel can't be preached to them unless they are sent to preach the gospel. And that's why Jesus, it says in verses 36 to 38, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest of lost souls is what he was talking about. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, that was his whole ministry. That was his heart. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, verse 38 really is a segue into chapter 10. So we'll really look at that last statement. And, of course, going out and preaching the gospel and making disciples. We'll look at that in detail uh, next time. But for the rest of our time this morning, you might be sitting there thinking, well, you know, okay, Jesus restores what the devil has stolen. I'm saved though. Okay, I've accepted him. He's restored to me uh, my relationship with God, right? So does any of this have anything to do with me today? Okay, yes, I believe so. Because folks, sin is a disease that infects and affects all of us even after we're saved. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus likened himself to a physician who came to heal people of the disease of the disease of sin that was destroying their lives. And we studied that portion of Scripture. The point he made in that passage was that a physician can only help those who realize they're sick and in need of a doctor, right? I mean, if a person doesn't know they have a medical condition, they're not going to seek out a doctor. And for that to happen, they need to see some kind of symptom or symptoms that indicate there's a problem. Now, we understand that clearly with our physical bodies, right? 
But what kind of symptoms can we look for to indicate our spiritual man isn't healthy? Well, in John chapter 15, which you don't have to turn there, but in John's Gospel chapter 15, Jesus likened our relationship to him is that of a vine to its branches. And he said at that time that a healthy relationship of the vine to its branches will allow the branches to produce what? Fruit. In fact, he said in John 15, verse 5, Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches, speaking to his disciples. Those who abide in me, that's speaking of a very healthy relationship, very close, intimate relationship with Jesus. Those who abide in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what does this fruit look like in the life of a Christian? Well, of course, you know what Paul said in Galatians 5. He said the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. And so if we put these two passages together, I think we could safely say that spiritual health, listen, is measured by how much spiritual fruit we have coming forth from our lives. In other words, how much love, how much joy, how much peace, and so on. And that the closer we draw to Jesus, in other words, the more we abide in him, the more spiritually healthy we would become. I mean, that doesn't take a genius to figure that out. makes sense, right? The closer we get to... If, if, if in him is life, if he is the fullness, right, then the closer we get to him, spiritually speaking, the more healthy we're going to become, the stronger we're going to become, spiritually speaking. But the farther we move away from him, the less healthy, the weaker we're going to become. I mean, that just stands to reason, right? And the symptoms of this drifting away... Now, here... I don't think anybody wakes up one morning as a Christian and says, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to walk away from Christ today. I think that's it. I'm I'm done. You know? What happens is they usually begin to drift away slowly. They just begin to move away. Their relationship cools. They no longer spend the time with Him that they used to. And that gives opportunity for other things to slip in there. Until finally they wake up one morning and maybe you experience this and you go, how did I get here? How did I get here? Oh, I used to be so close to the Lord. I used to hear His voice. I used to feel His presence. What happened? I feel as dry and empty and, and, and removed from Him as I ever have in my life. It's because you've drifted. Well, is there anything that God can do to warn me? Yeah, there are symptoms. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And the symptoms of this drifting away from Jesus would be that the farther we moved away from Him, the less spiritual fruit would be produced in our lives. Until you got so far from Jesus. Okay, the idea is the farther you move away from Jesus, the less love you have, the less joy, the less peace. Keep moving farther away, less love, less joy, less peace, and so on. Until you finally run out of God's love, joy, and peace altogether, and you begin to enter into the negatives now. What do you mean? Well, in other words, love would give way then at one point to anger, vindictiveness, bitterness, unforgiveness, and even hatred. If you're starting to feel those things in your heart again, Things that God removed when, he, when the love of Christ moved in. If you're having a problem in your marriage because you know there's anger and there's bitterness and there's unforgiveness is there. If you're having a problem with your other relationships, maybe at work or uh, in your family or church family. If your heart has become very vindictive, very cold, very critical. You find yourself you know, having, again, those prejudices against certain people that God delivered you from. This is a serious indication that you've moved far enough away from Jesus where the attributes of God have completely gone and now they're being replaced by the negatives. 
Again, the farther you move away from Jesus, the less and less peace you have until finally, not only do you have no peace at all, but now worry, anxiety, and fear begin to fill your hearts and your lives. Joy, well, that will be replaced with unhappiness and even depression. There's a lot of Christians who are very unhappy, even depressed. And I'm not talking about those who deal with uh, clinical depression. I'm just talking about Christians who, you know, find themselves in a place where they're very unhappy, very uh, feeling very empty. Uh, they're uh, depressed, worrying about everything. Folks, these all become the symptoms that God is trying to use to warn you and me that our spiritual health is failing and that we need to come to the great physician for a healing. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the great physician, Jesus Christ. You want to make an appointment with him, you don't have to wait three weeks to see him. He's always there. He's always available. There's no waiting room. All right? Anytime you want to come to him, you come. And you and he doesn't charge you. He pays the price up front. All right? But if you were to do that, and you were to come to Jesus in all honesty, and you say, Lord, what is going on here? What, what is wrong with me? I don't, I don't feel your presence anymore. Instead of the love I once had and the peace and the joy, I feel anger. I feel hostility towards people. I'm, I just, I don't like anybody anymore, you know. I, I'm worried. I'm anxious. I, I'm feeling depressed. What, Lord, what is going on? If you would do that, and, and Jesus would, would, would be there visibly to, to talk with you, uh, I am sure that the prescription he would give you would be very simple. He would, first of all, tell you to examine your life carefully I think for any overt sinful activities, that's obviously a one. I mean, you know, if, if you're out there, you know, cheating on your spouse or living with your boyfriend or girlfriend out of wedlock, if you're out there, you know, uh, messing around with drugs or you're uh, messing around with uh, Internet porn or something like that, uh, then obviously you're not going to feel too close to the Lord. That's obvious. So that's got to go first. But, you know, there are other things that are more subtle. Things that are spiritually unhealthy that we don't even realize are unhealthy. I mean, look, I'm not trying to lean on a guilt trip. I'm just talking about whatever it takes to get close to Jesus, right? I mean, there are some things that we do in our lives that are not overtly sinful. They're just not expedient to help us draw close to Jesus. I mean, some people, you know, they've gotten really into the television again, you know? They used to come to church. They used to spend time with the Word. They used to do their own personal Bible studies. Now, it's like everything is they're watching TV. And they might not be watching anything sinful, watching the ball game or watching some other program. It's not that it's sinful. It's just that it's a distraction. It's taking you away from the time you once used to draw close to Jesus. Look, as the old saying goes, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And that's another pitfall. What are you busy with? Some Christians have gotten so busy with all kinds of activities that God gets the leftover of their day, their time, their money, their resources, and so on. So you have to ask yourself, look, where are my priorities at? Is Jesus still a priority? Well, I have to say no. I mean, if you're feeling very far from him, he can't be the priority, right? Look, spiritual health, just like physical health, takes commitment, sacrifice, and a proactive approach to life. You, you can't hope that you're going to get close to Jesus on accident. You're only going to get close to Jesus on purpose. You have to purpose to do it, which means commitment, sacrifice, you know, being proactive, going for it. If you draw close to God, what did James say? God will what? Draw close to you. There's a proactive nature there, okay? 
Too many Christians are sitting around saying, well, God's at me. I mean, you know, you can make, you can revive me. Just go ahead. I'm waiting, you know. And, and as you're clicking the channel surfer, you know, just, you know, whenever you're ready, God, I'm here, you know. And God said, get off the couch. Get back to church. Okay, get in fellowship with the saints. Look around for how you can serve. That's how God is going to work. Look, we're done. Let me just say this in closing. Jesus wants to do good in our lives. Yeah, the best thing he did was when he saved us. I'm talking about now after you've been saved. He still wants to do good because it still falls into the general description of his ministry back then and still today he's doing in people's lives. He's going around doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil. You know, Christians can be oppressed by the devil, obviously, right? And sometimes we invite the oppression. What do you mean? Well, we read in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, that Paul said we must not be ignorant of Satan's methods, lest he take advantage of you as a believer. The Greek word for advantage is a word that carries with it the idea of stealing from you what rightfully belongs to you in Christ. You are a creation of God as a believer. And the love, the joy, the peace, all the fruits of the Spirit are really God's attributes. Nobody can produce the attributes of God in their life. They can only be given to us by God when He comes to live in our hearts at the moment of salvation. Romans 5, verse 5. That the Holy Spirit poured God's love into us when we got saved. We can't manufacture God's love. We have plenty of self-love and earthly love. But I want God's divine love. That's an attribute of God, right? And so the idea is that These are things God has given to us as we have become partakers now of the divine nature at salvation. The love, the joy, the peace, all these attributes of God are now ours through our relationship with Christ. And they manifest themselves in our lives through the fruit of the Spirit. Those are ours. They belong to us now. Can we let the devil rip them off from us? Yes. You say, how? I'll tell you how he does it. He dangles in front of us. Well, first of all, what he does is he tries to tell you you don't have to go so far in your walk with God. I mean, you don't have to get crazy. All right? Come on now. You be in church three, four days a week. All right? We're going to read the Bible all that. Come on. You know? And what he tries to do is he tries to, to, to water down your walk. Now, after he waters down your walk, cools off the fire a little bit, then he begins to dangle in front of us the little baubles of the world, doesn't he? And he tries to tell us that what the world offers us is a lot better than what God's given. Because look, before you got saved as an unbeliever, you had a lot of fun, didn't you? You went to parties, you, you hung out with your buddies, you know, or your friends, you know, you got loaded. Boy, there was some good times, wasn't there? Really? I know that for a lot of unbelievers, they go to parties and get loaded because they're trying to numb the pain. It helps them escape from the realities of the mess their life is really in and the emptiness, and the loneliness. But you know, once you've been a Christian for a while, you forget how it was once in the world, right? Didn't Israel forget that? And they came out of Egypt. After a while, they started thinking, well, Egypt wasn't so bad. We had onions, we had leeks, we had garlic. Wow! You're going to give up what God has for condiments? Are you kidding me? That smelly junk is better than what God's given? We do it all the time, though. The devil gets us away from God, entices us, says, You want happiness? That's materialism will do that. You know, work a second job. Buy that boat. Get that motorcycle. That's how you're going to be happy. Taking us farther and farther away from God. You want peace? 
these pills, these will do it for you. You know, have a have a have a glass of wine every night, or have a martini. You deserve to kind of you know relax a little bit. Life is rough. You work hard. Of course, you know, you have your martini every night, and then pretty soon it's two martinis, and pretty soon it's you know. You don't have peace. Now you're just numb, okay? <laughs> you want love, you young ladies? You want a guy to love you? What do you think? A guy's going to love you if you don't give yourself away to him? I mean, he's got to know what he's getting, you know? Give yourself to him. That's where you're going to find love. It's all lies, folks. And here we are taking the true riches. The fruit of the Spirit, the attributes of God, the things that God plants in our hearts that makes life really worth living. And we start trading them away for the stupid, empty junk the devil is trying to entice us with. Look, Jesus wants to restore to us everything the devil has ripped us off from. I'll tell you what. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. And I know, I know, that some of you guys have allowed the devil to rip you off of some pretty important things. And you've drifted. And some of you have, if you were honest, and you don't have to worry about me, you talk to God. If you were honest with the Lord, you know what you have inserted into that place that God used to occupy in your heart. You know the activities. You know the pursuits. You know all the things that are taking your heart slowly away from the Lord. Jesus wants to restore all that the devil has taken. He wants you to have a full-on, on-fire, close walk with him. In him is fullness of life. And he said, if you abide in me, I will give you fullness of life. You won't need to look anywhere else to find satisfaction, fulfillment, and all the joy, the peace, the love, the everything you need, I will give to you. Because you're connected to me you know what? If you want that, then you need to listen to the great physician who was saying, examine yourself, repent, turn around, and start moving back to me. And that is not easy when you've started down that path of the world. But you know what? Jesus is standing there saying, look, when you're ready, you've walked away from me. But if you'll turn around, you will see he's standing right behind you. Because when you enter into that relationship with him, he made you a promise that he is never going to break. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. We can forsake him at times, but he'll never forsake us. And if you ever come to a point where you say, Lord, I'm going the wrong way, and you turn around in the sincerity of your heart and repent, you will find he's right there to take you by the hand and to lead you again in the right path. But that's up to you and me. We have got to let him restore us by moving again towards him and to stop moving away from him. So he is, that I'm entitling this message, Jesus the restorer of all that was stolen. Because he is the restorer of our lives. And may God give us the grace to draw close to him because only in him is life and fullness of joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've opened so many of our eyes, Lord. I know some are here this morning who probably have not made a commitment to you, uh, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, if anyone is here this morning who has not opened their heart to you, giving to you full control of their lives, then, Lord, work on their hearts and bring them to you. 
And Lord, for those of us who have walked with you and have known you for many years maybe, and now we find ourselves in a place where we've drifted from you. The joy is gone. The peace is gone. Instead of love, we find vindictiveness, even hatred towards people. God, forgive us. Lord, give us grace to turn and to again take your hands and then, Lord, to let you lead us back to that place of intimacy and fellowship. We just praise you, Lord. We thank you that you are so good. You don't give up on us, Lord. And you are patient. Give us grace, Lord, to stop going our own way, to start going back towards you, Lord, to live in obedience to what you have said. Lord, we thank you now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.